we don't say ethical monogamy. So, you know, monogamy is just inherently assumed to be ethical and consensual. So why can't we do that for non-monogamy as well? Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. In the last decade or so, the term ethical non-monogamy has gone mainstream. But what does it actually mean to be ethically non-monogamous? What does that look like in practice? That's what we're going to be talking about today. We're also going to explore some common myths and misconceptions about it, as well as some red flags to look out for if you're starting to explore polyamory, from one-penis policies to unicorn hunting. We're also going to explore some tips for making ethically non-monogamous relationships work, including how to get on the same page as your partners when it comes to the terms of your relationship. I am joined once again by Leanne Yao, also known as Polyphilia. She is a polyamory educator and sex-positive social media influencer, creating and curating humorous and educational memes, tips, videos, and other bite-sized content on non-monogamy, queer relationships, and sex positivity. She was named number one in Cosmopolitan's 10 polyamory experts to follow on TikTok. She is currently in training to become a polyamory-friendly therapist. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. Looking to broaden your sexual horizons? Check out Cheeks, a subscription-based sexual wellness platform offering a safe space for both entertainment and education. You'll find sex tutorials and live workshops in addition to erotic films and audio stories, as well as a taboo-breaking magazine. If you're on the hunt for ethically sourced content that celebrates diversity in all forms, Cheeks has you covered. With my exclusive discount code, LayMiller, my last name, you can try Cheeks for free for seven days when you select the annual subscription option. You can cancel at no cost or switch to the monthly plan at any time during the trial period. The monthly subscription is $14.90 per month, while the yearly subscription is $9.90 per month. Watch, listen, and learn with stimulating erotic content and educational resources. What are you waiting for? Check the show notes for the link or head over to getcheeks.com to start your free trial. That's G-E-T-C-H-E-E-X dot com, discount code LAYMILLER, L-E-H Miller. Okay, Leanne, let's talk about non-monogamy. Now, I want to start with a definitional question. People throw around a lot of different terms. We hear ethical non-monogamy. We hear consensual non-monogamy. Some people just use the term non-monogamy. What do you think is the term that we should be using here when we're talking about sexually open relationships? What should we call it? And what does it mean for non-monogamy to be ethical in the first place? Yeah, so I've been really excited to discuss this with you specifically, Justin, because obviously as a researcher, I know that it's very important to distinguish saying consensual non-monogamy to be distinct from like cheating and infidelity, right? Like, And in your research, I think that's a really important qualifier. I think ethical non-monogamy has been the term that's been used for quite a while now. And I think that's because non-monogamy was so stigmatized for such a long time that people felt the need to say like, oh, but it's ethical because, you know, everyone consents to it and we all agree to it. And, you know, like it's all good between us. 
But I and a number of other people around like 2020 started saying that maybe we should just start saying non-monogamy without the ethical consensual qualifier in daily life. I think in research, it's still important to say consensual, but like, I just mean, you know, just socially like day to day because it feels a bit defensive. You know, like I don't want to say I'm ethically non-monogamous just to be like, but I'm not a cheater. I feel like kind of defining myself by what I'm not um, is not great. And the fact that we're already saying kind of non-monogamy instead of just some other term entirely, it's like saying like non-heterosexual. I have my own personal gripes with that, but you know, language, it is what it is. But yeah, we don't say ethical monogamy. So, you know, monogamy is just inherently assumed to be ethical and consensual. So, you know, why can't we do that for non-monogamy as well? You know, like, obviously, I think, like, ethics and consent and things like that are important in relationships generally. But to kind of qualify uh, non-monogamy with, like, an ethical label just feels unnecessary to me. You know, I think that we can have these discussions about, like, what ethics means, you know, in relationships without having to say we're ethically non-monogamous specifically, because surely that should be assumed. That's why I, you know, have always said non-monogamy and I'm trying to encourage other people to say non-monogamy as well. It's also just less of a mouthful, <laughs> if I'll be honest. <laughs> um, but yeah, to answer the second part of your question about like, you know, what does it mean to be like ethical in non-monogamous relationships? You know, I think there's obviously the baseline of everyone being in agreement and communicating honestly with your partners about the arrangement that you're in and being able to make agreements and set boundaries and respect those boundaries. And, you know, like all the things that you would typically expect in a monogamous relationship as well. You know, I think that's kind of, yeah, baseline ethics. And then I think there are some ethical things that are uh, kind of more specific to non-monogamous relationships, which are very hotly contested in the non-monogamous community. So for instance, something that comes up a lot of the time is unicorn hunting. So, you know, unicorn hunting, different people define it in different ways, which is another reason why it's so nebulous to debate, is basically when a couple seeks a third person. And in the swinging world, right, like that would be just seeking like a third person to have a threesome with. And in the polyamory world, that would be like seeking someone to ha form a romantic triad with, like a thruple where like three people are all dating each other. And I have you know, different opinions depending on which definition of unicorn hunting we're talking about. But generally, like, I think there are scenarios where like this can be appropriately negotiated and people can be respected and things like that. I do think a lot of the time unicorn hunting is practiced by couples who are entirely new to non-monogamy and they think that it's the easiest path to try it out because they're like, oh, well, if we're both dating the same person, then, you know, we'll be able to be involved in each other's connections and it'll feel safer. Because it's just one other person. And, you know, we can set all the rules and that person just has to agree to them and then it's fine. Um, and, you know, that is not how it works in reality. Because, you know, just because two people are dating the same person, it's not like there's a couple and then they're both, there's just one relationship with this person. It's like, you know, person A, oh, so if we're saying the couple is A and B and then the third person is a C, there's a relationship between A and B, B and C and C and A, as well as like a whole dynamic, you know, between them as a group. 
And all four of those relationships need to be nurtured in order for the whole thing to thrive. And I think as well, if two people are frankly competing for the attention of, for this, of the same person, comparisons and jealousy and insecurity can come up much more easily because, you know, you can't guarantee that you'll connect with the same person in the exact same way or your relationship will progress at the same time, at the same rate, and the same intensity. And so it creates a lot of potential problems than if you just dated separately and let each of your relationships grow at their own organic rate. So, you know, when I, when we talk about ethics in the community, I think that's probably the biggest thing that comes up in kind of discussions where couples like set overly strict agreements and boundaries without actually thinking about the motivations and reasoning behind them or not really thinking about the needs and desires and wants of like a whole other person that they're bringing into this dynamic. It's inconsiderate behavior, it's selfish behavior, it's entitled behavior, you know, and it's not very flexible. I think these are the things that people in the community kind of look down on because, you know, we want to be kind of treating people relatively equally in terms of giving them equal opportunities and equal standards, right? Like in a relationship rather than just being like, well, you know, me and my partner talked about these rules and you have to take it or leave it. I want you to date both of us in the, in the exact same way and we're going to set all these rules. But if one of the relationships breaks up, then I get to, you know, force the other relationship to break up. And it's like, that's not very fair. The third person can be very hurt by this. And, you know, and that's not even getting into the privilege of inviting a third person in when you've had like a long history together. Maybe you're married, maybe you're living together. And the implications of that on a societal level right? In terms of the kind of recognition of this extra person that you're bringing in and how society might perceive them or how they might be disadvantaged financially or socially. So it's a nebulous topic, you know? I could go on a whole rant about unicorn hunting and kind of hierarchy and things like that, you know? Um, (laughs) So, but yeah, that's broadly my take on that question. Yeah, it definitely is a nebulous topic. Now, you mentioned a lot of important things, you know, one to just go back to the language issue Yes, sometimes the language that scientists use when they're describing relationship styles or sexual practices is different from what people might use on social media or in everyday life. And it makes sense. It's fine because scientific goals are about we want to have precision in language to make clear whatever it is that we're describing. That's why, you know, for example, in my textbook on human sexuality, I don't actually use the acronym LGBTQ plus all that much because it's such a big term referring to so many different people with so many different life experiences. And so am I talking about gay and lesbian people or am I talking about bisexual people or asexual people or trans people? They're all different groups. And so I think, you know, sometimes our attempts to be so inclusive in use of language makes it very hard to be precise in what we're saying. And so, you know, that's why it's important, you know, to have that precision in language when we're talking about things scientifically. Now, personally, I don't really have an investment in terms of what we call this. Is it non-monogamy, consensual non-monogamy, ethical (laughs) non-monogamy? I I don't really care that much. Whatever (laughs) language people want to use that, you know, works for them, that they identify with, great, let's do it. But let's just try and be clear in what it is that we're saying. I would love it if we could all have agreement in, you know, language, but I know that that's never going to happen and it's always constantly evolving. So I don't know exactly how to settle that issue, but use the terms that you're comfortable with. But, you know, I tend to revert to consensual non-monogamy most often just because that's the term that I've used for so many years now and you know it can be hard to break those habits and and change language but let's talk a little bit more about practicing non-monogamy in ethical and healthy ways 
So you have this fabulous blog post titled 15 Common Red Flags in Polyamorous Relationships. And I'd like to talk about a few of them in detail. So one of them on your list is something called the one penis policy. So can you tell us what a one penis policy is and why you think it's a red flag? Yeah, so a one penis policy, often kind of shortened to OPP, is the most common way that this manifests is a relationship between a straight man and a bisexual woman, where they're in an open relationship and the straight man is like, well, since you're bisexual, you can date other women, but I want to be the only man in your life. I want to be the only person penetrating you, (laughs) to put it in very crude terms. You know, and some people even go further to say like, oh, and you know, you're only allowed to date like cis women, not trans women, you know, who also have penises sometimes. This is, you know, another one of those things which is kind of hotly contested in the community because, you know, my personal take on it is that it's unethical. I think that if you're kind of policing your partner's bisexuality in such a way, is not really kind of validly recognizing their like homosexual attractions as equally valid because you know a lot of the time not all of the time but a lot of the time when a straight man says you're only allowed to date other women but not other men you know what he's saying is women are less threatening to me than men the only way that I can feel secure in a relationship is that if you date a gender that's different from me and that feels kind of fundamentally different because you know and I'm not kind of doing the work to kind of think about why that is. It enables the man in a relationship to avoid a lot of work that frankly he should be doing. And also recognizing that, you know, obviously people have different parts and different genders, but ultimately we're connecting with people, not genders. You can date two people of the same gender or with the same parts and have a completely different experience with both of them. And so, you know, it just gender or sex or whatever, it feels like a very arbitrary line in the sand to dictate who your partner can date because you know it's not like as a bisexual person you know I you know I don't know about you but like I can't just turn off my attraction to men just because someone told me to <laughs> um and <laughs> if you're going to be like embracing your partner's like autonomy and freedom of connection and things like that I feel like it just doesn't really kind of gel with that principle in my opinion it's also kind of toxic because of this you know I think a lot of the time people focus on penetrative sex as being like the only type of real sex. You know, I'm sure as like a sex educator and kind of sex advocate, like, you know, you encounter this a lot. And I think a lot of men have this subconscious belief that like they own the women that they're in relationships with and they feel insecure about, you know, other men kind of penetrating their partner or just kind of being in relation to their partner because of kind of this, this ownership belief on a number of levels. I think it's problematic I also kind of want to distinguish between situations where like a man kind of dictates this and, you know, and the woman kind of agrees to it or whatever. And situations where, you know, the man actually has no problem with whatever gender his partner is dating, but the the woman herself is like, you know what? I feel like I've, I don't know, fulfilled my man quota. <laughs> I'm only interested in women and non-binary people, <laughs> you know? And, and I think, you know, if it's out of personal choice, then great, you know? But uh, yeah, like I, I do think that even in situations where a man is like, you know, I don't want you to date other men and the woman is like, cool, I don't want to date men anyway. I still think that that can create problems down the line if the man doesn't kind of question like why he experiences this discomfort. We can set whatever boundaries we want in a relationship and, you know, whatever boundaries make you feel safe, great. But I think it's also important to question the motivations behind those boundaries and also examine whether they're coming from a problematic place. 
And ideally, you know, to do the work, to work through those things in order to give your partner the kind of freedom and autonomy that you're aiming to give each other. And also to kind of recognize their sexuality, you know, and their bisexuality and give them the freedom to express that in whatever way they choose. That's kind of my take on it. And, uh, you know, so I think that the one penis policy can be misogynistic. It can be homophobic. It can be biphobic. Right. And it can be transphobic because it's like, oh, well, you know, you can only date other women, not other men. What about trans women? What about non-binary people? Right. Like, you know, it, again, it's such an arbitrary standard. I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, as you were talking about that, I was also thinking about how, you know, you don't really hear about one vagina or one whole policies. You know, it's really something about the penis, you know, where you've got this one penis policy. And so, yeah, it is worth unpacking, exploring, where does this come from? And I was also thinking about how, you know, for a lot of heterosexually identified men, they find the idea of two women together to be arousing. Like a lot of straight guys have lesbian or bisexual fantasies with regard to, you know, their partner having sex with another woman. And there's something that is erotically appealing to them about that. But for many of them, the idea of their partner, female partner, having sex with another man would be threatening or create jealousy in some way. So yeah, I mean, the dynamics here are complex and there's a lot that you could unpack and explore there. I'm so glad you brought that up, actually, because bisexuality is so fetishized. It's like simultaneously like invisible in the sense that like bisexual people are not seen as valid or that like kind of one of their attractions is not real or whatever, but kind of simultaneously hyper visible because so many men, straight men, like have these fantasies. They would love to see like their girlfriend do some girl on girl and it doesn't count because it's a woman. So kind of what comes out of this is that if you have a one penis policy, you know, a lot of the time it's just because the man you know, is only comfortable with non-monogamy so as long as it's being done for his benefit, you know, directly. And the moment his partner expresses some autonomy or freedom kind of outside that connection and does something for her own benefit or her own pleasure, and it doesn't turn him on specifically, then suddenly he's not okay with it. And I think it's really important to allow your partner that autonomy, even in ways that doesn't directly benefit you, you know, to be able to revel in your partner's pleasure and your partner's happiness, even if it's not something that directly fulfills you or directly contributes to your hard on or whatever, <laughs> like, you know, so, so yeah, like, uh, like I completely agree, you know, the fetishization of bisexuality is definitely a huge part of this, you know, it contributes so much by misogyny and the one penis policy, I think is a direct consequence of that for sure. Yeah. And I agree about, you know, ideally you'll be able to take pleasure in your partner's pleasure and so forth. But for a lot of people, that's easier said than done. And, you know, it can be hard to work past jealousy and so forth. And we'll talk more about that a little bit later. But another red flag I want to talk about that might strike some people as counterintuitive is when people have a polyamorous partner who demands complete and utter fairness in the relationship. Now, on the surface, fairness sounds like a good thing. But when people want fairness, they're often equating it with everything in the relationship being perfectly equal. So you can't go on a date or have sex with someone else unless I have someone else lined up too. Or if your date cancels on you, then your partner needs to cancel their date too. So I know you hinted at this a little bit earlier when you were talking more broadly about ethical non-monogamy, but why is this overemphasis on fairness in the sense of like having pure equality and everything a red flag in polyamorous relationships? Yeah, so I think that fairness, you know, can be interpreted in a number of ways. I think it's important to give your partners like equal opportunity, 
right? But that isn't the same thing as equal outcome, you know? And I think if you try and force a certain outcome, that's when it gets problematic. Like, it's one thing to be like, yeah, you know, we can both have the freedom to date other people, you know, that's equal. We both have the same standards on that. And it's another thing to be like, we have to both do these very specific things in order to achieve this at the very same specific, time. Yeah, at the same time, in the same way, to achieve this very specific outcome. Because ultimately, you know, you and your partner, you're different people. You're not a single unit. And you might have different desires, different preferences, etc. And the people you connect with, they're going to have different needs and desires as well. And even if you both date the same person, like I said, you're going to have very different relationships with the same person. So if you're being kind of overly calculating, kind of playing a tit-for-tat game and trying to be competitive about your dating lives and stuff, that can get very toxic very quickly. I think that uh, men and women have very different experiences of dating. (laughs) I think that's just established fact. Um, So then kind of policing that and then kind of getting upset about one person having more dates than the other or, you know, trying to kind of control the number of dates that they have because you're not getting any and it gets very complicated very fast. And I think obviously if if your partner's going on a lot of dates and you're barely struggling to get a match, that's sad, you know? And I think you could, you're able to talk about that. And if your partner chooses to kind of limit the amount of time that they spend with other people in order to kind of accommodate that, great. But ultimately, dating is not a competition. And if you're trying to introduce these elements of competitiveness in your relationship, then I think that runs the risk of you starting to see each other as adversaries rather than as a team, right? And this touches on what I said earlier about being able to be happy for your partner, even if it doesn't directly benefit you. Um, And being able to hold these emotions at the same time. And also kind of recognizing that you having a negative feeling does not necessarily mean that your partner has to change their behavior in order to stop you having that negative feeling. You know, because of, you know, maybe some long-term goals that you want to reach in terms of working through jealousy or insecurities and things like that. Basically, you know, I think it introduces competitiveness. I think it introduces kind of some calculations in things that frankly can't be calculated in that way. You know, I don't think it's realistic to try and be 100% fair and equal to everyone, you know, and we can also talk about like, you know, couple privilege, right? Like I think in situations where say you're married to one partner and uh, you're not to another, that has real consequences. And so, you know, being like, oh, well, but, you know, everything's equal and everything's fair, that brushes under the rug. A lot of real social consequences that need to be discussed and mitigated and just, you know, and just, yeah, acknowledged between you. Yeah. So in addition to just kind of all this competitiveness and stuff being a bad thing, I think it also is unrealistic. Yeah. And I think you explained this all really well, but for a lot of people, you know, initially when they're drawn to practicing non-monogamy, they might think that that fairness model sounds ideally like it would work like in theory it seems like it would be fine but you are so right that it can create this dynamic of competitiveness and it's a way that you know you're kind of controlling your partner and it can be rooted in jealousy and insecurity and so that can make it very tricky to kind of like navigate this situation when you're demanding like you can only see other people if I'm seeing somebody else and we're doing it at the exact same time. Like there are so many variables there that just the stars have to align in order for <laughs> that to work out. You mm. know, relationships are complex. It's not necessarily the case that you're both going to like get on an app and find a partner at the same time or just happen to meet somebody in daily life. It, you know, relationships are complicated and that's part of the reason why this like tit for tat thing just doesn't work really well. Now, 
since we've been talking about, you know, how to practice non-monogamy ethically, I wanted to ask for your take on what seems to be kind of a hot debate within the polyamory community, which is whether hierarchical polyamory can be ethical or not. So for people who don't have background context in this, hierarchical polyamory is basically where you've got one primary partner and then any additional partners you have would be considered secondary. And non-hierarchical polyamory would be where you have more than one partner and they're all considered to be equally primary, right? There's no distinction between them in that case. So some people argue that when it's hierarchical, when there's one primary partner, that it can't truly be ethical. So curious for your take on that. Yeah. So I would qualify kind of uh, your definition of non-hierarchical polyamory first a little bit before I get into answering the question. I don't think non-hierarchical polyamory is necessarily viewing everyone as primary, but it's what I said about equal opportunity, not necessarily equal outcome. So everyone has the potential to be primary if they wanted, but obviously you have different dynamics with different people. And it's basically there isn't like an assumed primary right? And you can kind of have each relationship be, take shape in whatever way that feels natural for the parties. But that doesn't necessarily translate to like everyone being on the same level, because sometimes you just don't vibe that way. (laughs) So yeah, I hope hope that helps a little bit. Whereas in a hierarchical relationship, that'd be, you know, there's a very strict primary, they will always be that way, and that never changes. I think before I answer that as well, I need to also kind of qualify like how different people define hierarchy in the first place. I think in my mind, there are two different types of hierarchy. I think there are logistical hierarchies when it comes to legal marriage or living together or you know having children, being co-parents, that just by the nature of how it works, right, means that one partner has priority in kind of certain respects over others, right? You know, for example, if you live with someone, you've lived with your partner, you'd have to kind of consider them when you're making decisions about the home or inviting guests into the home and things like that, right? Or if you're married, then yeah, you can't marry other people. And that has kind of the social and legal consequences that result from that. So I think that, you know, these hierarchies, I don't think they're unethical. There are plenty of people who are married and polyamorous, right? But they need to be disclosed and, you know, and they need to be discussed about what that means, right? Because yeah, like if say there's a throuple and two of them are married, then kind of what does that mean for the third person, right? When we're talking about hospital visitations, when we're talking about inheritance, if one person dies, and we're talking about like meeting the family and who's going to be seen as like a valid partner and how we're going to combat that, things like that. Yeah, so that's kind of the first type. And then the second type of hierarchy is the one that I have a bit more of an issue with, which is kind of specific rules that, you know, a primary couple might set on other relationships. So common ones, for instance, are things like, you know, you're not allowed to sleep over at their house. We have to share a bed. Or they can never meet your family. Or, you know, we're the only couple who are allowed to go on holidays. You can't go on holidays or you're only allowed to take short trips at best. You know, things like things that like limit the potential for connection in the relationship. Kind of just arbitrary things that you keep exclusive to a connection. Another example is, if I feel uncomfortable about whoever you're dating, I get to decide when you break up with them. That's called veto power. That's another thing that, you know, is not well regarded (laughs) in the community. So I think, yeah, like I said, the first type of hierarchy, right, these logistical hierarchies need to be disclosed up front, need to be discussed, but are not inherently unethical because it is what it is. Our society is built for monogamy. Society encourages monogamy. Our society encourages being in a relationship. Single people uh, suffered the financial and social consequences of being single. And, you know, that is the reality of the society that we live in, right? 
But the second type of hierarchy, which is, yeah, like, you know, setting these arbitrary rules and uh, regulations to ensure that your partner doesn't get too close to someone else in a way that feels threatening, is something that I have a problem with. Because at the end of the day, if your partner doesn't sleep over with someone else, like, it doesn't mean that they can't build a very, you know, emotionally intimate and deep connection. And I think that resentment will eventually start to build between you if it becomes a thing that they really, really desire and you're not letting them. You know, I think that this can be counterproductive to the relationship that you're actually trying to protect. Um, Kind of veto power, like I said, is another thing. Like if you give your partner the power to end your other relationships, you know, I think it might be okay if it's like you've been on like one or two dates and then your partner's like, stop the breaks, you know. But if you've built like a deep connection with someone, you've had the sustained relationship and then your partner's suddenly like, I don't like them. You need to break up with them right now. How do you think your partner's going to feel? <laughs> like, because you're not only asking your partner to break their other partner's heart, but you're also asking them to break their own heart. And asking someone you love to do that, you know, to hurt themselves by doing something that they really don't want to do, that's going to have real consequences in your own relationship. You know, your partner's not just going to be like, okay, I'll break up with them and then just turn around and be like, I'm all yours now. We're all good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think, yeah, like uh, kind of that type of hierarchy, like the kind of emotional hierarchy is kind of how I categorize it in my mind, can lead to a lot of problems. You know, obviously there are extenuating circumstances and these generalized statements don't apply to all scenarios. Twitter, please don't come after me. Um, but generally speaking, I don't see those having a huge success rate. Yeah. And I appreciate you clarifying that, you know, different people might define hierarchical and non-hierarchical in different ways. It has me thinking about this paper that some of my colleagues and I published a couple of years ago, where we looked at people in hierarchical and non-hierarchical polyamorous relationships. And basically what we found was that amongst all of the people who said that their relationship was non-hierarchical, there was always one partner who seemed more primary than any of the others in the sense that they lived with that person, they had been in a relationship with that person the longest, they had the most investments in the relationship with that person, such as you know maybe being legally married or having shared finances or something else. As you mentioned, you know our society is set up to recognize monogamous relationships. And it's hard to share all of those investments equally with every partner that you might be involved with if you're polyamorous. And so for a lot of people who adopt the label of non-hierarchical polyamory and who say or see all of their relationship partners as equal, there's usually still one partner that they've invested more in just because it's hard to make a perfectly equal set of relationships when society isn't set up to recognize somebody who is in multiple relationships simultaneously. Yeah. And at the same time, I'd also argue that, you know, living with someone or being married to someone doesn't necessarily mean that your relationship is deeper, you know, or more committed. Right. And so, yeah, you know, I absolutely agree with you. Our society is set up in a certain way and it's difficult to avoid that. But then, you know, someone could be married to one person and have like emotionally, right, like a deeper connection with someone else, like for instance. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily kind of translate like, you know, logistics don't necessarily translate to emotions is basically the point I'm trying to make. But yes, I agree with everything else you said. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And that makes sense. So to round out our discussion of non-monogamy, let's talk about some tips for making it work. So let's start at the beginning. Let's talk about relationship agreements. What is your favorite tip or set of tips for establishing a healthy and workable non-monogamy agreement? So, you know, before you even start making these agreements, I think you need to think about motivations. 
So I think that a lot of people do non-monogamy for the wrong reasons, whether it's because your partner wants it and you don't, but you don't want to lose them, or, you know, your sex life is failing, you want to save the relationship, or because, you know, you fear commitment and feel like, you know, spreading your energy among multiple partners might be a way to continue avoiding doing that work, or your partner won't stop cheating and you feel like being non-monogamous means that you can just accept that about them or something. There are lots of ways you can do non-monogamy with motivations that might not be the best idea. Um, So I think that questioning kind of why you want to do non-monogamy in the first place is really important before you even start getting into how you're going to be doing non-monogamy. So I think kind of good reasons to try non-monogamy would be, yeah, like, you know, a desire for kind of sexual variety, novelty, or yeah, exploring your sexuality in some way, you know, whether it's like kink or your bisexuality or like whatever it is, just kind of wanting to develop those kind of fluid, flexible connections that I described as like a big perk of non-monogamy, or just, you know, wanting to work on yourself and feeling that being in this relationship style will really kind of help challenge and work through kind of uh, insecurities and things that have been holding you back, things like that. You know, and and a bunch of other things, you know, I'm just saying these off the top of my head. So I would start with kind of questioning your motivations first. And then from there, yeah, making agreements. So firstly, you'd have to establish, so if we're talking from the premise of like, you're opening up from a monogamous relationship with your partner, let's just use that as an example. I have very different advice if you're starting single. Um, But do you have a shared vision for what you're looking for? So, you know, what type of, you know, there are lots of different types of non-monogamy. Do you want to be swingers? Do you want to be in an open relationship? Do you want to be polyamorous? If you're going to be polyamorous, what type of polyamory do you want to practice? You know, there's so many subcategories. What are you looking for? You know, what do you desire? What is your long-term goal here, right? If everything was up to you, how would you want it to be? And I think a lot of people, if they're already in an existing couple, they fall into the trap of just like working with what they've got because, you know, maybe their partner has more restrictive desires than them and then they kind of work within that. And I think, you know, that can work for some people, but if you're doing something that's contrary to your own desires or you're doing things that are holding you back from achieving your own long-term goals, that can lead to resentment and dissatisfaction down the line. And so even if it leads to a hard conversation, I encourage people to have it early on because you know, you would much rather find out that your partner wants hierarchy and you don't, you know, and just be like, you know what, we don't want the same things. It's going to be hard, but I think we've just grown apart than to just be constantly fighting about, you know, various different agreements that you're having, you know, over a long period of time that just drags it out. <laughs> I say, I speak from personal experience there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so have the hard conversations early on, even if it means potentially breaking up because sometimes you just can't work through incompatibility. And just because you were compatible while monogamous, it doesn't mean that you'll be compatible while non-monogamous. And that's just a, you know, a sad reality of it. And I think that like, it's better to be in relationships that actually kind of fulfill and reward you long-term than to be in a relationship for the sake of being in a relationship and to sustain a relationship because of the sunk cost fallacy. I don't believe in just maintaining a relationship just because. So yeah, like I think kind of considering kind of compatibility of desires is a really, really big factor if you're kind of negotiating this in an existing relationship. You know, from there, I'd also think about the reasons behind agreements that you're making. So for example, uh, a very common one is agreements about how much you disclose to each other about your other connections, right? Like some people want to hear all the details, you know, the more they hear about it, the more excited they get. And they're like, oh my God, I'm so glad you had a good time. Wow, you had this type of sex. Oh my God, that's so hot. I want to hear all about it. And some other people are like, nah, like give me the highlights real. (laughs) It's all good. (laughs) Um, And some people, you know, don't want to hear it at all. 
like what's going to work for you and your individual dynamic, right? And also kind of why do you want to know certain things? You know, because I think there's a very big difference between asking something like, hey, did you have a good time on your date? And asking, did he have a bigger dick than me? Um, you know, um, those are different questions. Yeah. Like, you know, the motivations behind those questions and the reasoning why you want to know that kind of thing would be pertinent here, right? Like, are you asking your partner to disclose this information out of morbid curiosity or just genuine interest? Are you setting this boundary to avoid doing certain work, right? With a one penis policy, you know, do you think that knowing this information will help you or harm you? (laughs) There's so much that I could get into, but I think kind of setting these agreements, you know, and thinking about the motivations behind them, but also being flexible because you're bringing other people into this and their needs matter as well. It's not like you set all the rules and then you you just never change because you also change over time. Your desires might change over time. So always remaining open to flexibility and renegotiation and considering other people, I think are the kind of basic baseline principles that I would say would make non-monogamy be sustainable long-term. Yeah, I think those are all great tips. And we could go on talking about this probably for hours. So I'll have to have you back sometime to do a deeper dive into tips for navigating non-monogamous relationships. I would love that. Thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Leanne. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? Yeah, so you can find me at the handle Polyphilia Blog across all social media platforms. So that's P-O-L-Y-P-H-I-L-I-A-B-L-O-G. So I'm mostly on Instagram, but I'm also on TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, uh, YouTube. I also have a Patreon where, you know, in addition to the content I post daily on my platforms, I have some bonus content with some deep dives and a video diary where I talk more about my personal life and reactions to media and things like that. So I also offer peer support. So um, I'm currently in training to become a therapist, but if you need uh, additional perspective or guidance or just resource recommendations and things like that, you can book some time with me and speak with me and I'll give my insight and perspective as much as I can. Thank you so much, Justin. It's been a pleasure and uh, I've been a fan of this podcast for a very long time, so I'm very excited to be a guest on it, finally. (laughs) Well, thank you and thank you for your time and I'll be sure to include links to everything in the show notes. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a minute to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. 